Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have freelance writer Fraser Brown. Hello. Are you already yawning and, and falling asleep, Fraser? What? No, I said hello. All right. It sounded. It sounded pretty. Uh, it sounded pretty much like a like a tired old man Fraser yawn. Uh, from, it's from not over even. Here. It's not even ten o'clock at night over here. I'm <laughs> I'm full of life, vim and vigor, and all that good stuff. All right, and we are also joined by Lore Sworn's T.J. Hafer. Hello. Uh, and. We're going to be revisiting one of my favorite games uh, from from last year, Hearts of Iron 4, uh, in light of a whole bunch of patches and the Together for Victory expansion. Uh, so, you know, let's 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 recap a little bit. Where where did we all come? Where did we all come down uh, w- with Hearts of Iron at launch? I I thought it was uh, terrific. Um, I. I Never really understood what the hell was happening with air combat, uh, but that that nobody aside, on the wiki even knows what's going on with air combat. <laughs> uh, yeah, so with with the exception of, of that, though, it really it, it delivered mostly on on what I wanted. the The only the, the major issues I had were were that air combat felt a little weird, and I felt like the game maybe kept was a little too on rails as far as the alternate history went like if you pushed outside of if you went for like really ahistorical routes um things got really weird really fast and i wasn't sure how i how i felt about that uh in the end like for for me i wanted like i think rowan used the term historish uh mm-hmm. gaming and that's and that's kind of where i did end up with um with Hearts of Iron Four, I wanted to be changing history, but like I didn't want history to like completely uh, come undone around me. Um, what about you, gentlemen? Uh, I think on the on the podcast where we were doing our our big Hearts of Iron one, I kind of th- I think I came out as the most uh, unenthusiastic yeah. member of the panel. Although I liked it a lot, I just I felt that there were a lot of issues in the transition between the grand strategy layer and the the war game layer, uh, and I I really had problems with how the war would pan out because it just went on and on. And you get to this point where the war is over, you have definitely won, but there's this annoying pocket of resistance, and thus the war continues. It it can be just really difficult sometimes yeah. to make certain places capitulate, and it, it dragged on, so it never felt like there was a, a resolution or a climax, and I was always just waiting. So sometimes it would go on, go on into the 50s, even though I'd won in the 40s. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was my number two game of the year last year, barely edged out by Total War Warhammer. I was really debating between those two for like over a week. Um, I thought that the the way that they kind of streamlined the Hearts of Iron 3 formula while still keeping it about resources and production and managing the the infrastructure of going to war being a, a core element and, and making that accessible, I really liked. I did have very similar problems in terms of stuff dragging on. I don't think I've yet played a Germany game where I wasn't 
trudging through, you know, eastern Siberia in <laughs> 1948, trying to get enough provinces to get the Soviets to capitulate when they've already lost every city west of the Urals. Um, or until the most recent patch, Japan was also a big problem because the uh, AI didn't seem to know how to invade the home islands. So if you were playing a smaller <laughs> nation, it was pretty much up to you, no matter what, to knock Japan out of the war, which would always get a little bit annoying. Um, and then the performance issues are really the main thing I still struggle with. Like if you play much past 1948, I still get pretty, you know, tremendous slowdown uh, in in the later years that makes it a little bit harder to enjoy a longer campaign that doesn't wrap up around the same time that actual World War II should wrap up. So, with Together for Victory, like it's an interesting case uh, for an expansion because with a lot of the other Paradox games, I would say it's there. There's so much interesting there's so many interesting possibilities at the margins of those of those worlds strategically speaking that like you can always do a deep dive on some other uh feature or period or region in uh in in those periods maybe maybe more so in in, in ck2 than in uh eu4 but nevertheless like there's a lot of possibilities for like exciting play with like lots of options and and possibilities Arts of Iron 4 is a game where there's great powers and there's kind of everyone else. Uh, or there's, there's great powers and, uh, you know, minor powers, and then, and then there's a bunch of nobodies. But but in either case, it's like, this is a game that is largely meant to be played from one of, like, six, uh, you know, six players, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Together for Victory is is really going all in uh, to to some extent on the smaller players, uh, particular particularly uh, the Commonwealth nations. It's also trying to give uh, smaller nations a little more their due. I, I would say uh, one disappointment with um, with Hearts of Iron Four at launch was that outside of those great powers. Uh, your your choices got a lot less um, bespoke depending on who you're playing, right? It's like every other country gets to develop like recognizable uh, doctrines and weapon systems and uh, have their own like political paths that they follow. Uh, if you're a great power, if you're a minor power, you kind of get some vanilla uh, trees, which maybe isn't a deal breaker, but definitely makes it feel a little bit like you're not playing. Like you, you've wandered uh, into the scenery, right? It's, mm -hmm. and, and this is where the, this is where the matrix breaks down. We didn't bother to simulate this part because, because no one yeah, cares. Uh -huh. uh, I would say that was, that was an issue with hearts of iron four. I'm not sure it was an issue that bothered me though. Uh, all that much. Uh, and together for victory kind of goes about addressing that. However, it does also, in, it, it does introduce some possibilities for how to play Britain differently, uh, which which is interesting. Uh, so, how, like, where are you guys at with Together for Victory? Do, do you find that, that uh, it ma it's making meaningful changes, or are you more interested in how mm. the game has been patched uh, since it came out? It's, it's interesting because it's... It, I, I have a positive view of the expansion, but I feel like it's 
for a lot of the reasons you just articulated, it's like one of the least impactful and one of the most, frankly, boring Paradox expansions that's come out in a long time. I mean, we're used to these EU4 expansions that are like giant shakeups and everyone completely changes how you play the game. And together for victory, it's almost like, you know, Commonwealth Nations Focus Tree and Events Pack and Friends is kind of the bulk of it. I mean, they added the system with, you know, puppets and integrating puppets and yeah. differing levels of autonomy, which feels necessary. It feels like they're kind of building on some infrastructure of stuff that didn't make it into the original game, but feels like it should be there. It needs to be there for everything to work. Um, they added, like, some new ways to draw battle plans, which that's all kind of peripheral stuff to me. Um well, I think there's one change to how battle plans work uh, that that I would well, uh, maybe maybe that came with the patch, but uh, I, they they made one change that I would say was desperately important. Which was that the spearhead thing? Yeah, yeah. That was I, the expansion. Yeah, I never use that because I I usually always micro <laughs> individual divisions if I'm trying to do some sort of crazy but breakout that's kind of spearhead the, or something. But, but you had to. The point of the spearhead yeah. is that you don't have to anymore because you can give up some of that micromanagement. And if you really like the micromanagement, then yeah, of course, don't don't use it. But I thought it was it was a helpful tool to have in my uh, you know in my arsenal. But it, yeah, there definitely there's a discrepancy. I mean at least so far we have one expansion to base that on between like any other paradox games expansions where i'm like oh my god they're doing what with like together for victory i'm like okay yes yeah, that's pretty cool i mean i appreciate all of this but it's you know it doesn't drastically change the way i play the game and i like the flavor i like adding flavor to smaller nations and just generally having more events that happen like you see some of the the Australia New Zealand type events, regardless of what nation you're playing, which I think is a good thing. But it, I don't know. It feels like, yeah, thanks, but I'm not, you know, over the moon about it or anything. I had a completely different reaction because uh, huh. I it Hell was yeah. a game changer for me. I I absolutely I think it's I I think there's still problems, but I largely loved the the expansion and it it massively improved the experience for me i think a lot of that is because i don't really want to play britain or germany or any of the great powers i mean like i don't not want to it's why i've just done it so much and i think the thing that i love most about paradox games and grand strategy games is delving into the to the lesser known less celebrated less seemingly important on in the grand scheme of things uh, powers and that's what Together for Victory lets you really enjoy, because as as Rob mentioned earlier, these other countries had this default tree, basically, and there were differences with their geography and their industry and things like that, and maybe their their starting ideologies. But when you start developing the countries, the, the flavor just vanishes, and they could be any nation under the sun. And that's just a bit of a shame, and I understand why Paradox did that, because when you're talking about World War II, you're talking about a very specific group of countries that had the biggest impact. But I like to treat Hartsvarn for more as a sort of mid-20th century simulator rather than just a World War II game, because I, I, I feel that that's more grand strategy, isn't it? Uh, 
and it's kind of elevated by that that war game layer but i still want to have these unusual alt history experiences in the grand strategy stage and you get tons of them even when it's just silly things like uh, new zealand's ill-fated tank program which never really got off the ground and actually you can develop that so you could start churning out the adorable little bob semple tanks which are the cutest tanks ever created and launch an invasion of australia and it's one with context because you've been working your way down the focus tree specifically to do this so it feels like the decisions that you're making aren't just meaningful but they are very much supported and encouraged by the game so it, it made me want to play these smaller nations a lot more. Uh, and when I played them originally, I would just get bored within five minutes, but, but not anymore. Wow, so like... I feel like I'm, I'm getting dispatches from like Bizarro Land uh, to an extent, <laughs> which, is, which is great. Like I, I, I'm thrilled. I think for me, and, and th- th- this is where the podcast begins to spin off in an odd direction, becomes more of a meditation on Paradox games, I think. Okay, so when I was first learning like uh, EU3, I liked playing minor powers because decisions were smaller scale. It, it felt easier to sort of keep track of everything and see how the systems worked because I wasn't dealing with them on, on such a massive scale. Um, and so that was great when I was learning. But as I got more comfortable with these games... I find the lack of agency that comes with being a small power can be really frustrating. And it's, it's, it's less of an issue in Crusader Kings where you can always just... Basi- basically, because the game is centered on a human level, right? Like, the stakes are whatever matters to your character. You know, you can, you can mm-hmm. basically have, like, the most blood-curdling power plays happening in the middle of, like, bumfuck Russia... <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you're 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 playing like uh, you know <laughs> Macbeth upon the tundra, basically. Yeah. Um, and that and that's still that's still cool. So it doesn't matter if if you're not the king of England, if if you're not like the leader of of the Hundred Years' War. Uh, ditto EU. Uh, w- with EU. Well, I, I don't know. Like, I think Sean Sands, like someone like Sean Sands, is at a point where he now increasingly goes into that game to break it. He plays all sorts of small powers just to like try weird stuff with them because eventually you can you can crack the game open and turn tiny little nobodies into massive superpowers. Cool. I, I, I kind of thought get that it. was the whole deal. I thought that's what we were all doing, really. Uh, I feel a little <laughs> a little hamstrung. For for me, I I like to get to the, I like your intermediate powers. Right, like Burgundy is a perfect case uh, for me in EU because like they're just small enough to start that they have to really watch their back uh, near the start of the game, but they have a lot of interesting possibilities to cleverly expand. Um, but if I'm playing somebody who's like seriously just like one or two provinces and they're kind of a nobody, uh, I just feel like well, everyone, every other nation is playing this game and doing cool shit. Meanwhile, I'm like opening a customs house and that's basically like that's that's my yeah. big game plan that's my achievement yeah and so I, from I get 1.8 income to 2.0 income yeah. you feel like 
ridiculously rich. Yeah, you're, 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 you, you've totally got it made. So what I don't get is, for Hearts of Iron, I feel like the problem with that game is that literally everybody but the major powers uh, is almost in that in that category of, of kind of being almost irrelevant to the game, not being able to affect it uh, well, all that much. And, and it's, so it's, I'm amazed to hear Fraser talk like this. It's a, it's, it's it a makes sense though. thing too, yeah. But it, see, you're saying you didn't have agency, you didn't feel like you were able to do enough or have this big impact on the war or the world. And I completely agree because that was one of the issues I had with the launch version of Hearts of Iron 4. Together for Victory changes that so you can pick a minor nation and still have a sort of thrilling, meaningful experience where you're making big plays, you're able to actually change the world, not as easily as a, a great power is, but it still feels like you've got your fingers in a lot of pies and you're working your way up the chain to the point where you become a major power. And so it gives you the freedom and agency that was lacking before. So I completely agree with, with what you're saying. I just think that's what Together for Victory kind of improves. Huh. So you don't... I can hear the gears working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Well, uh, I... Go, on, go on, TJ. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say it's kind of a time scale thing, too. Like, CK2, you have so much time that you could start as, you know, the the count of ass nowhere, build up an empire that's like a third of Europe, and then completely collapse back to a county and rebuild back up to the same size and still have, like, a couple centuries to go just because of how long the timeline is at this point. Whereas Hearts of Iron being so chronologically yeah. confined... Like, if you don't get off to a good run, it's like, well, probably not going to accomplish anything noteworthy this playthrough. But I, I feel Together for Victory gives you noteworthy goals that can, they might not even necessarily be all that important uh, when compared to the sort of big things that Russia's doing or the UK. But in your part of the world, they are momentous things. And really change the way that you play. Like, and in, I mean, New Zealand invading Australia is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so I wouldn't well, call that, like, a small, forgettable thing. Yeah, and, like, my first my first Together for Victory game, I played as South Africa. I went, uh, I went communist, and then I liberated, like, all of the former British colonies and created, like, my own sphere out of that, which was a lot and of you fun, because you can You release... can create these factions as well, okay? So yeah. you can create your kind of communist African faction, if you want. Right, exactly. The, the thing is, I, don't, I feel like it's, it's, it's similar to, like, when they add, like, a new government type for Prussia in EU4. Like, it's, it's a nice icing-on-the-cake type thing, but I don't feel like it necessarily changed the way I play the game. Like, I'm still... I'm still building the same, you know, types of factories at the same pace and, you know, the same types of tanks and using the same tactics and everything. Like, I I don't feel like it was a fundamental way, change to the way I play the game from moment to moment. It was more a change in the type of objectives I could strive for using the mechanics and tactics I was already familiar with. No, I get that. I mean, although they do add new units, uh, not for yeah. every Commonwealth nation, but um, New Zealand gets their own. I think yeah, India yeah. gets some of their own, and then they share ones from the from the UK tree as well, and kind of 
like alternative versions. Um, but I agree, largely they kind of function in the same way that they, all the other ones do. Um, but for me, the, those object, objectives and making these weird plans, that's part of the joy of, of running a country in these games. Uh, so while maybe I'm still doing a lot of the same things, it still feels very different because I have a, a context behind me and it feels authentically say, Australian or South African. I'm dealing with actual problems and crises that these countries were dealing with in this era. That's, that's a good point. Because I, I definitely think... So if, when you're playing as a, as a great power, uh, particularly the UK, it sort of feels like there's some things I just can't be bothered to think about. A lot of times, like, if a division gets sent off to South, South Africa or, like, a destroyer squadron is put on patrol uh, in, in the Indian Ocean or around the Cape, uh, that's probably the last time I'm ever thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, well, we got to... We got to get the uh, anti-submarine yeah. patrols going up around uh, uh, around the southern Indian Ocean, and you guys are good for about six years, right? Cool. Yeah, we got unread naval battle results. Just gonna right-click to dismiss <laughs> that. I've got other stuff to worry about. <laughs> yeah, whereas I imagine a lot of that stuff becomes a lot more immediate. Uh, like if you're Australia, uh, for instance, like I'm in the process of uh, wrapping up uh, Neptune's Inferno, which is a Really, really good uh, history of the naval campaign around Guadalcanal. Uh, but what's really striking is, like, for Australia, there's there's parts of this campaign that are basically like existential threats. You know what I mean? Like, it's like for everyone else, this is like what 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 resources is this is this fight really worth? Uh, how how all in do we go on uh, sort of holding the line in in the South Pacific? Uh, for Australia, it's like. This is this is the red line. Like this, this is where we have to hold. Um, and I, I, I could see that being, I could see that being entertaining. But I guess Fraser, talk me through it a little bit, because I, I think for me, one reason I've hesitated to embrace playing smaller powers and why some of the features in Together for Victory leave me a little cold is that it just feels like, on the grand scheme of things, like if if there's anything major happening in my neck of the woods i can't really do that much to affect the outcome it's like that eu4 thing where like you're kind of the minor power but you're buddied up to a major power and so like they're contributing 30,000 soldiers to this battle and you've got 6,000 not an insignificant number uh but nevertheless it's like all you can kind of do is watch to see what they're gonna do and try to show up at the right moment well, see, a lot of the time, though, what you're actually dealing with is other minor powers. And sure, you might then get a major power who's like, oh, I'm going to get involved in this. And it's like, oh, shit, they have more men in that army than I've got people in my entire country. Um, but often you are just dealing with other minor powers. So you're like 6,000 troops are still going to be pretty helpful. But for me, I think the thing that really made things interesting, uh, a lot of it's in the, in the national focus tree. Because, so instead of just enhancing those trees and basically giving minor powers cooler trees, what Paradox did was give them more focused trees. It's not like this big overwhelming buff and suddenly they can do like all the things that a great power can do. Instead, it forces you down these different paths 
with these equally interesting decisions that you can make. So whereas before you might not have to really give a shit about giving up manpower to support your industry, with this new tree you might. You might have to make these key decisions that will go on to define your nation going forward. So it's not just picking whatever works because it doesn't really matter. You're actually creating this 10-year, like, 20-year plan or whatever you want. So every little click you make on that tree actually has this overwhelming influence on the rest of the game. And there are a lot of neat little things about the way it manages uh, autonomy and independence and civil revolt and things like that are changing your ideology. It supports you know, India going to Nazi Germany and saying, can you give me a hand here? I want to free myself of Britain. And suddenly you have this, like there, suddenly India becomes this major player in the war in a way that it wasn't necessarily before because you've just clicked this one thing. Well, and I so, will say about, about the focus trees, the Commonwealth focus trees, and to some extent the Polish one that I think came out as free DLC, they're very good, and even to the point that I think they make some of the great power focus trees feel lacking. Like, I feel like they, they came up with a new sort of template of how to make an interesting national focus tree, and they applied that to, together for victory, and now I feel like the ones that launched with the game for the great powers need another pass to kind yeah, of be definitely. brought up to par with the ones from the expansion. Because they're, they're huge as well. Uh -huh. But in it... I, not in a sort of overwhelming, daunting way, because they're not about just kind of click, like clicking every single national focus in a certain order. You're going to be ignoring a lot of that. It gives you this kind of variety, but while still inspiring a great deal of focus. The other thing is the uh, the sort of persistent uh, focus thing yes, that they've God. got. Which is absolutely fucking awesome. Crucial. Because yeah. so often you find yourself running out of national focuses <laughs> the game and you're like, can't die. Exactly. Like your, your government just like goes on vacation for the last four years of the war or something. <laughs> it's like, it well, makes, we don't have anything else to do. What well, really it makes you realize how in drag. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it makes you realize how weirdly engaging choosing a national focus is. Because it means there's always something going on in the background. Some progress is being made there. Yeah. So instead of having to, to, to worry about running out, you have quite a lot of cons uh, persistent ones. So you're increasing your manpower, your, your um, infantry training or something like that. So when you may be don't have all the prerequisites for a, for a focus that you want to choose, or you have just done everything that you wanted to and the war is not over, you can continue to enhance your country uh, in, in the same way. So yeah, that, that's, I think I didn't realize how much I needed that until I actually started playing around with it. Oh yeah, that, I was so unbelievably happy to see that because like, Especially because a lot of the focus trees are sort of time and event sensitive. So, like, once things start to happen, it's like entire branches just kind of die. It's yeah. like, well, look, uh, World War II started, so none of these choices can happen now. Thank you for playing. Uh, the focus trees <laughs> is really only for pre-war, and now... Uh, now, can we interest you in this delightful uh, strategic level war game and we can forget all about this uh, 
politics stuff. Uh, yeah, the focus trees are are really crucial. And what what these do? So, if you haven't played uh, a, a lot of Hearts of Iron, one of the cool things is that history is is sort of modeled in part by national focus trees. And so a good example is for like the great powers, there's focus trees that sort of determine what side of the coming alignments uh, you're going to fall on, right? So like, is Italy going to follow the Pact of Steel and uh, buddy up with the, the, the Axis? Uh, or is Italy going to basically try and become its own great power and uh, possibly like become another power block to rival the Allies and Germany and the Soviets. Um, and you, you, you do this by having these decision trees, basically, that every 70 days, uh, you know, you, you choose a the next step in your political evolution, and another decision uh, unfolds that sort of works around the existing game mechanics. So sometimes, like, factories will just sprout up out of nowhere to simulate the way a country is, like, rapidly mobilized for war. But the problem is, with, with the original with the original version of the game, was the focus trees only went up to a certain point, and a lot of them were sort of dependent on uh, on prerequisites or certain things having not happened. And so, usually, like parts of Iron Stars in 1936, a lot of times, like by the early 40s, you've kind of run out of interesting things to do on the national focus trees. What they've introduced now is you can continue uh, doing the national focus stuff, but now there's like ongoing recurring ones. Uh, so basically it's sort of like in civilization where you can sort of put a city on like manufacturing gold once it was done building yeah. whatever it needed to build. Now the focus tree element can sort of be used to decide like, okay, these are the buffs I need right now, uh, which is really, really cool. And keeps this mechanic like alive late into the game and gives you some flexibility on a strategic level uh, late into the game. Whereas before, this was like a cool idea that only really worked for about a third of the game's length, if that. See, that was my kind of point about the weird transition between grand strategy and war game, yeah. where like half of the game suddenly vanishes. And I, I think that Together for Victory really it, it doesn't completely fix that. But it is a big step towards repairing it. Um, and and the, the cool thing is about these, I think they're called continuous focuses. Um, they are like temporary specializations. And when I say temporary, it's not that they run out. It's that you can just switch them whenever you want. So you never have to feel like, oh, I could only do this for X number of weeks you can it, it's more that you can just decide to go and focus on an actual real national focus or just switch up to a different specialization so it feels like you're constantly changing your nation and that continues throughout the game even once the war is basically over well and it ties in to the the autonomy system which i feel like has worked on some level to address the problem of hearts of iron 4 is really good at telling you whether or not you won the war but once that final peace conference kind of explodes everything you don't really get a very neat or logical looking post-war world <laughs> like you'll have japan owning like a bunch of the soviet union except not kamchatka for some reason and like all this stuff whereas 
what they've kind of done with puppet and satellite states and allowing you to technically diplo annex people um like you might in eu4 i think it's it's created more of a textured post-war world which is cool to look at and allowed you to do some some more acquiring power through politics as opposed to just through conquest which was much harder to do previously you get some cool choices with autonomy as well because mm -hmm. while on paper when you don't have full autonomy it kind of looks like it's going to suck um like you're not really in charge and you kind of got to beg for scraps from a major power mm -hmm. but actually you get loads of benefits that especially when you're just kind of powering up and getting ready for war are essential for a, for a smaller country uh, and you get these like tech uh, you get a tech assistance which you can actually get as well by just being in a faction um, but there are just a lot of these small advantages that ramp up and you realize wow there are loads of benefits to stick with Britain but then there are just equally good benefits for leaving so you've just got to decide what type of country you're going to be but it's not a right or wrong decision you can enjoy the game either way um, what I'm less impressed with is the way that a country can stop another one gaining autonomy. When yes. I was playing South Africa in particular, when I started making my big moves and thinking, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch allegiance, I'm going to gain my freedom, and I'm going to fight Britain, Britain did nothing. Like, no effort was made. Mm -hmm. It kind of made me feel a little sad, actually, because I felt like Britain doesn't care what I do. I'm not providing anything. But it feels like they should have been maybe trying to stop this entire well, country just leaving. That's the interesting thing, is it's kind of a one-sided relationship yeah. that's controlled by the vassal, because the only mm -hmm. way that you can lower the autonomy of your subjects is by using that continuous focus. And if you still have important, you know, non-continuous focuses to finish, you can't afford to be running that for the whole game just to keep all of your vassals in line. Yeah, there, which... there are a few, like, small things that you can do, but it is largely, as you say, that the vassals choosing certain national focuses might actually lower their autonomy, helping the, the major power. Uh, but really, it's, it's, it's so weird to think that they would have to wait for a vassal to make a decision before the autonomy right. could be lowered. Right, and it's it's interesting because, it, I mean, I, I'm not sure how it would work out in multiplayer because I don't, I think, for the most part, if you have historical focuses on and you're playing Britain, you're not going to have, like, South Africa demand independence partway through the war. Like, it's scripted for them to just not go that way. Um, but it would be interesting to see in multiplayer if you had one player playing one of the Commonwealth nations and one player playing the UK and they were opposed, opposing each other on the subject of whether or not the subject nation should remain, you know, a dominion or whatever. I'm not sure, not sure how that would work actually when, when you have two human players involved. Sending each other a lot of notes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, because the, the vassal in that situation has so much more uh, authority in the relationship, really, unless they're forcing the human player playing the great power to con continuously run that uh, suppress vassal's focus, 
which kind of hurts everybody. So it's an awkward, awkward power dynamic, I think. I mean, obviously, though, when you're actually playing as as that puppet or dominion or whatever it it's it works to your benefit i guess but it would have been exactly, nice to yeah. have that sort of conflict though where i'm like okay i, I want independence but what is britain going to do to stop it and the answer is largely nothing but that, that doesn't mean the system it doesn't work it, it just means that aspect of it needs a lot of rethinking because there's so many cool things that can happen when you're trying to get autonomy i think india has some of the most interesting examples of that where a lot of the cho- you're making a lot of choices about how your country's going to look after it's gained independence. Um, like the two, like for instance, the creation of Pakistan is yeah. this is a big part uh-huh. of that. And I think it's if you go down the democracy side of things, so you gain independence, but you're a democracy, you kind of have to choose that. It's very much you're kind of nudged in that direction. But of course, you can choose to go down a communist or fascist route and you don't necessarily have to create Pakistan. So it creates this kind of interesting alt history just by the ways you decide to go down this autonomy uh, path. Well, it kind, of, it kind of screws you over if you choose not to form Pakistan, too, yeah. because the the two state people are not happy with you, and it, it kind of throws a wrench into your, your whole post-war nation, but yeah. That's cool. You want more wrenches. I mean, that oh, was, yeah. I think, no, one I, of the... I agree, yeah. It's one of the issues with these countries before the expansion was that there weren't very many wrinkles and it was a lot of waiting around, but it can devolve into a massive clusterfuck now, and I really like that. Yeah, I um, what I what I find kind of intriguing here is it's sort of, I think the way, um, autonomy sort of works is, it's moving in the right direction, but it feels a little bit a little bit crude, um, and I guess what I'm looking for in some cases is. This is this is where the game begins to drift away from being a World War II game, I think, to an extent. Uh, because I guess what I'm looking for a little bit is more of a sense of almost Victoria-esque political movements uh, I was happening. just going to say Victoria too. actually. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, like, it, it kind of makes sense that the Dominions, for instance, like, realistically without a player there being like, oh, this will really throw a monkey wrench into history. Canada's not going to be like fascism. Hell yeah. yeah. Like that's not that's just not that doesn't make sense. Like Canada's not gonna be like, now's our chance to like, you know, seize the Great Lakes and uh and throw off these these British shackles. But what I am looking for, I think, is a little more of a sense of that some of these colonies could start being driven by popular sentiment to break away, and I can't really like do much about. It. Or it becomes it becomes a thing I have to manage a little bit. It's not quite unrest, but just there's the, the, like there'd be political facts on the ground you you have to take into account. And I'm sort of surprised that you know when I'm playing as Great Britain, it kind of felt like I didn't have to take that into account. Like basically, did I have the resources or not? You know what I mean? Did, did I have the yeah. points to spend or not? to change this relationship. And that isn't entirely... Like, that sort of makes sense, I guess, for, like, Canada. But it seems a little bit inaccurate for India. 
Um, and I, I, well, I, yeah. And the funny thing is, they they are kind of moving in that direction. With we were just talking about the Pakistan decision that India gets. I mean, it's not on a macro level with the great powers, but that event is very much framed that the popular sentiment is that there should be two states, and if you go against that, you're going to have a bad time. Um, but I could definitely see the argument of extending that to some degree. Like if you insist as the UK on keeping India and we're going to fight to keep India, you know, you gain partisans in all of your Indian territories or something like that. Because well, I, I, I agree. I think that would be much better. But the issue is, of course, they don't really model population uh, in Hearts of Iron 4 on demographics in the same way that you get in Victoria, because it's not really about people. Um, and that would improve things so much more dramatically, because the, the bit where you're talking about where you, you would find these two country uh, two nation people getting really pissed off it's not that it's really just a sort of a little script event yeah that kind of happens rather than there's an actual population pre-existing in your country that is now pissed off with you. well i guess this uh, is like maybe maybe it becomes like if you like if you fail at managing the autonomy system well enough you start playing with the occupation mechanics yeah, maybe that maybe that's the solution. I kind of well, that, want to see is like that's kind of what happens with with the the Pakistan events. It's just you yeah. get a modifier on those states that causes people to start burning down your factories and stuff. And I could see them implementing that on a state by state basis. You know, just adding a modifier that's like the people here are this demographic, and you've irritated them, so they're not going to cooperate with you, and you're going to get less factory output than roads and bridges are gonna start getting bombed maybe the next dlc should really be like a victoria style expansion <laughs> it's like oh you're wanting victoria 3 but here's what we've given you instead <laughs> yeah i think well and the other funny thing is a lot of the stuff is probably not worth investing too much in it if you're just doing a war too but there is that glorious sordid history of trying to make hearts of iron into a cold war uh, post World War II order game. Yeah, yeah. do you and... remember that one? Was it East and West? Oh, versus oh yeah. East versus yeah. West? Oh yeah. yeah. Never gonna forget that. Nice. Yeah, because that was that was pretty much what that was. It was Hearts of Iron Cold War. Yeah, let me tell you where that went wrong. When they started introducing ship customization. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, oh no. yeah, they did. No, I'm just, I'm, in, I, I'm reintroducing one of my one of my bugaboos. But I did think it was a yes. little crazy to be like, and this game's about this Cold War. Anyway, you can switch this missile launcher with a turret on your destroyers. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I do remember. I do remember being shown the the the, sh the actual ship stuff where you could just add modules and components. And at the time, I was like, "Oh, cool." Well, the, the <laughs> thing is, some of the cooler ideas that they had for East versus West were like, what happens to equipment when all of these countries demobilize? And I think they could definitely use the current Hearts of Iron Four mechanics to be like, you know, oh yeah, the U.S. is going to sell off all their obsolete stuff to Egypt or. Oh, this you know former Soviet Republic went independent, and they got all of these you know old Soviet era weapons, and so now they can arm themselves to you know fight their neighbors and things like that. Uh, there was the uh, espionage system as well, if yeah. you recall, which was kind of like a sort of card-based spy game, uh, where you would get cards with spies with different stats and different specialities, and send them out to do missions, which was quite cool and kind of authentically Cold War. 
But I don't think it would be too much of a leap for a sort of Cold War Hearts of Iron thing to come out of Hearts of Iron 4. It already is a game that continues indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> can you, get it up in 1991, yeah. I so there I, I think something this game desperately needs is an off ramp for war. Like <laughs> it's it, it's it's kind of like once the once the World War II started, it's like, all right, well everyone's locked into this now. Uh, diplomacy is what it needs. Actually, because there's diplomacy until the war happens, and then that's one of the things that gets kind of shunted off to the side with all the grand strategy stuff. But if you could actually just say, look, guys, you've, you've just got, like, nobody helping you. The war has been over for a decade. Just give up. Well, and the fact that you you don't really have the agency to, like, turn on your faction. Like, if I'm playing as as Australia... And I get pulled into the war because I didn't complete my independence from Britain focus soon enough. And then I decide I want to join the Axis. I can flip my entire country to fascists, but I don't have any... Like, I'm already in the war on the side of the Allies. I don't have any recourse to be like, I, hey, we're coming over to we, your side. When we played uh, the the big Paradox multiplayer thing back... I think it was, it was quite like a year or something before release... I try to make everyone communist. Mm-hmm. I think I managed to make so many communist super states, and none of them would back me up because they are all they were all with the allies. And yeah. There was nothing they could really do about that. Yeah, if you're in the allied faction, the day war breaks out, you are stuck in the allied faction until the day the war ends. You you can leave the faction, but you'll still be part of the war on the allied side. I'd love that sort of backstabbing betrayal. It's like, oh yeah, we're we're helping our buddies out in the war while secretly making deals with the other side. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I'm I'm just looking at how this game is coming together. I'm looking at the autonomy system, for instance, and I'm thinking that would really apply to the Warsaw Pact really well. Mm-hmm. Like, you, this this could this could work so well if the if you were just allowed to get out of the World War II era and like have some sort of new unstable equilibrium that then moves on. Like, I don't know, like, if, you know, if Russia and Germany had decided not to press things beyond the winter of 1941, right? Like, wh- wh- where does that leave things? If immediately mm-hmm. Germany and Russia are both like, oh, this is this is a terrible idea. We're both going to, like, this could, this could be a disaster for both of us. Let's, let's settle down. Uh, that That's an interesting line of play that right now this game doesn't really allow itself to explore. Um, but yeah, I, I think like this is a first step toward maybe opening up a lot of other things. Um, I, I'd still be interested in seeing, uh, maybe a little more, uh, fleshing out for, in addition to things like, uh, diplomacy, like maybe also occupation. I like the way occupation is handled right now in the game. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's, there's clear trade-offs. Um, on the other hand, I think there could be room for a little more management of occupied territories. I don't know whether that's fun. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe that's, Mm -hmm. maybe that's not awesome, but like, you know, something that comes up a lot, for instance, is pretty much around the world. The allies were constantly trying to figure out what the hell do you do with the French? You know what I mean? Like, are they taking yeah. orders from Vichy? Are they joining the Free French? In some cases, are they just doing whatever the hell they want? You don't really know, uh, and that's an interesting thing you could you could play around with. Um, well, but, and then there's go on. 
there you could also do some interesting things in the post-World War II era with the world tension system as it exists. Because it's like the U.S. and the Soviet Union never like went to full-on war, but they, they fought a lot of proxy wars in other parts of the world. And maybe that's like, okay, well, we don't want to start World War III. We want to keep world tension under 30% or whatever, but we don't want to let the communists have French Indochina. So instead of declaring war, we're going to have a proxy war over here and we can send however many number of divisions safely without escalating it. I mean, it wouldn't take much to turn world tension into a doomsday clock, would it? Right, yeah. It's because that's exactly what it is already, so. So, as far as, you know, we've been talking a lot around uh, the war aspect of of this game. Uh, Do you (laughs) find that the the war game is pretty much as as you left it? Are are you finding some things work a little bit better? Uh, Where are you at with playing Hearts of Iron once once the shots uh, start to fly. Because like, I think another issue I had sometimes was, for me, Hearts of Iron felt like it was at its best from 1936 to, like, 1942. And then mm-hmm. it became kind of just waiting for the weight of material. Like, by 1942, like, the, usually somebody had enough of a lead econo- economy-wise that, like, it started to feel a bit more like a stalemate grinding toward an inevitable conclusion. Uh and if you really enjoyed like pushing the troops around, that could be great. But at other times, it just felt like it was not terribly dynamic. I'm curious whether you feel that patches and Together for Victory have done anything to mitigate that. It's all about the log for me. I bloody love that thing, the combat log or war log or whatever they call it, uh, which is a uh, thing that was... I don't think that was a patch. I'm pretty sure that was Together for Victory that was introduced in where it basically breaks down every component of a battle to give you every piece of information you could possibly need to determine what you need to change about your divisions, what your equipment situation is, how you're handling terrain. Basically, like, why have you lost and why have you won? And this log gives you, rather succinctly, all that information. And it's... I didn't use it nearly as much when I was playing a minor power, but when you've got a major power that is embroiled in conflict in theatres all across the world, having this kind of one place to look at your entire... I think it's a whole year of battles you can look at. Yeah. Um, and then... And and it's just little simple things, like you click on the icon and it immediately takes you to the location of the battle because it still might be playing out. So it's also just a great way to actually get to those hot spots really quickly. Um, but how I sort of used it is I would, like, my first sort of confrontations would almost be like a test run. It's like, how am I comparing to my opponents? Because actually what the log is, it's a bit like gaining intel on the enemy. It's not just about seeing how effective your your troops are. It's about seeing what strengths and weaknesses the other guys have as well. And what they tend to bring in, like how much armor have they brought into this conflict. And it means that you just have this one place to clearly see all of that. So you get a lot of information really quickly. It's still a bit intimidating because there is a lot of it, but I think it's expressed in a pretty concise way. Um, yeah, it it really... I don't think it necessarily changed like war for me, but it made it so much easier to manage, and I got a lot less frustrated and had a lot of... A lot fewer questions by the end of it. A lot of the time before, I was like, well, why the hell did this happen? And it took a lot of effort to really yeah. get the answers I needed. They were there, 
usually, but where? Uh, <laughs> so it was hard to find them, but now it's not. Yeah. Well, and if you're the type of person, I don't, I don't know anybody like this, but if you're the type of person that likes to write like five page Saving Private Ryan esque prose descriptions of individual battles that took place during your Hearts of Iron Four campaign. Again, I don't know anybody who does that. Uh, that, that certainly, would be a certainly weird. no websites like that exist. <laughs> yeah, where, no, like, you do no, that. Nobody does ARs that anymore. For. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> just for um, nerds. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely cool to be able to go in and see like, okay, this is how this division performed, and and you know, come up with that that narrative that builds in your head when you're playing a, a really good grand strategy game. Yeah, I'd never really thought of that. That is that's such a good point. It must make it so much easier to do AARs when you yeah. have all of that information. It's just fodder for your story. Well, and yeah, that's, that's it definitely point. was a major issue that because a lot of so managing production was was satisfying, but also very complicated in uh, in Hearts of Iron. And unless you had like an insane lead you still had to make really tough choices, right? Like, what were you going to do without? But the problem was, it was... You're making these decisions, but it was hard to tell how they were actually playing out on the battlefield, right? Like, did did adding those toad anti-tank weapons really help those infantry divisions? I don't really know. But I've got, like, a million of these things sitting in storage. <laughs> and, like, maybe yeah. I should stop building them? But, like, what if secretly that's the... What if that's the key to making inventory viable on the Eastern Front for the 1943 campaign. I don't know. And it, was, I just, it was largely like a confirmation bias thing. Like, yes. oh, seems like my troops are doing better because I gave them <laughs> anti-tank guns, yeah. But maybe it's just because the anti-tank gun is just tech three, and it's just like, okay, it's a stat yeah. buff. And that that tipped it. Like, you yeah. don't, like, a lot of times it felt like you were flying blind. Uh, now it definitely feels more like I have the means to sort of assess uh, what actually is going on. I find that especially is holding true with uh, naval battles uh, because now I'm seeing who is doing what in these in these naval battles. Uh, I'm not sure you could get that detailed breakdown of who was actually generating all the damage uh, in these battles. And now you can sort of see like what an effective, you know, what is an effective surface fleet doing in an engagement uh, versus <laughs> uh, like a destroyer flotilla, right? Like, what does that fight actually look like? In the past, it was like I was sort of basically making decisions on the lines of, well, carriers were the key to World War II Navy, so <laughs> yeah. I probably don't need a battle cruiser, right? Like. Battle cruisers were just bad, so I'm not going to build any. What what could they possibly do? And then you see like one battle cruiser like just destroys like twelve destroyers over the course of like a single <laughs> engagement, and you're like, okay, maybe battle cruisers. Like it, it's it's useful being able to dive into that sort of stuff because like ultimately where Hearts of Iron was most satisfying was constructing the right production chain to support the kind of war you want to fight uh, effectively, and it nailed every part of that except letting you know if you were succeeding. <laughs> but that's why I think going back, way back to when, when TJ said that he didn't feel the expansion had this kind of big impact, I kind of feel like even that one little menu is actually a huge deal. 
It kind of, I mean, it kind of is, kind of isn't, because to some degree, the way I fight hasn't changed much, because by the time Together for Victory came out, and this just will depend on your play style, but I had read, like, dozens of forum posts and wiki articles on how mm. to, like, construct the optimal armor division as Germany, or how to construct the optimal, like, U.S. Marine division, like, down to, like, they've got formulas and... and you know, they've tested it and they're presenting their conclusions. You know, I, I approach division design in Hearts of Iron, you know, the same way that someone might, a, a thesis. <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of research and then I figure out what works and then I, I use that rather than kind of the trial and error that we were all doing when the first game, or when the game first came out. When um, the game first came out, I'm still doing it. <laughs> right, and that probably a lot of people still are. Um Rowan always gives me shit about, like, I don't understand how the common man plays Crusader Kings because I've played way too much of it. <laughs> and, He's uh, sitting in your ivory tower. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that... I, I like having that data there just to, to be able to look through it and, and kind of double-check myself. Um, but honestly, the the biggest thing that I see in terms of like the when the bullets start flying, uh, as Rob said, is just that the AI has gotten a lot better at certain things. To a point, uh, particular. To a point, particularly naval invasions, like they can actually execute. Oh man! A okay. Workable naval invasion. Okay. Now. Uh, <laughs> Hold on, though. Hold on. Okay. Okay. I feel like the AI was so concerned with whether it could launch naval invasions, it never stopped to ask whether it should. The sheer number of times you see your allies, like, it's like 1939, the war is starting, I'm uh -huh. allied with France, and they're like, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna push through the Siegfried line, I'm like, cool, 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 and then they're like, and then we're going to send 12 divisions from Morocco past Denmark <laughs> and land them in Prussia. And I'm like, wait, hold on, what? Run that by me again? And they're like, no, it's cool. Don't worry about it. The like the other day, I'm I'm landing troops. I'm I'm landing the British Expeditionary Force, uh, in uh, in Belgium to basically try to hold the northern flank against the Germans, um, and it turns into a race between my army landing in Belgium and a single Italian division. <laughs> that it sailed up from the Mediterranean to go join, to basically launch a seaborne assault on Belgium. This is happening a lot. Like you got to credit their enthusiasm. Well, I'm thrilled man. that they can do it. Like, hey, look at you getting on ships and invading places. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, whoa, hold, hold on there, <laughs> hold easy well, there, the Tiger. Is... Like, maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah, the other thing that they're they're still pretty bad at is following up naval invasions. Even if they successfully establish a beachhead, oh, yeah. it's like, all right, probably should bring some armor over now and continue pushing. But like, I got invaded by Japan as Australia, which in the moment I was like, wow, cool. this is cool. Like AI Japan is actually invading me. But then they had like a total of six divisions on the island that had landed in three different places, and I was kind of waiting to see, like, are they going to bring any more than that down now that they've captured a couple of ports? It's like, no, I just surrounded each of their tiny little armies 
and destroy them, and then they do the same thing, like, six months later and get destroyed again. Like, they don't understand... Once once the invasion has fired, they don't really understand how to follow up on that strategically to create a sustainable beachhead. It kind of feels like they've just rounded a bunch of people up from the pub, and they're like, okay, <laughs> we're doing an invasion, guys. Yeah. Who's in? And it's like the least drunk ones are like, ah, I'll do it, okay. <laughs> I can still walk, and that's what you've got. And like, I feel uh, like it would be the most drunk ones that agree to invade Australia. Yeah, but they couldn't get out the door. <laughs> They'd fall immediately. Yeah. Anzac spirit, mates. Who's with me? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's... I'm pleased to see it using the mechan- using seaborne invasions, uh, but yeah, I don't think it understands what a beachhead is and like how to exploit it. Like, I don't think it views it as like an endpoint for their like logistical tale. I don't, I don't think it mm-hmm. sees it that way. Um, and I just don't see a lot of rhyme or reason with how so kinda... seaborne landings are being carried out. Like, they're like again, I'm seeing way too many crazy ones being tried, like. In mainland Europe. Yeah. I don't always feel like the, the way the AI makes their divisions is really countering anything. Like, often it's like, okay, that they've countered this, but actually it's just luck. A lot of the times, I feel like, there, there's, as you say, there's no real rhyme or reason to, to their, their naval landings. And I can feel like that's the same with a lot of the makeup of, of divisions they fling against you. Like, it's what is around at the time. Yeah. Um, and I I don't feel like there's the AI has this kind of coherent plan. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't think they even their division design has gotten better, but I don't think they even mm. look at your divisions to decide what theirs are going to look like, or look at you know what what tank upgrades you've created with your tank variants. I don't think that even factors into what they do with their tank variants. Yeah, I mean, it could um, be, like, a really well-put-together division, but it doesn't really matter if they're not looking at what you've got. Yeah, if you've got all tank destroyers, they can put out, you know, the best heavy armor division that's mathematically possible, and they're still going to get destroyed. So. Yeah. I, uh, I'm also, I also, still it still feels like Air War is a little too Mad Max. Um, naval warfare I like it seems like it's in a good place it takes a long time before fleets really wear each other down there's a lot of like Uh smart disengagements I see happening like it takes a a while for fleets to to really grind each other into powder which is great in in vanilla it sort of felt like you'd have a couple big naval engagements and then somebody still had the navy and somebody didn't and that was that was kind of where it It ended up it was very EU4 like your fleet's gonna be gone after the first major battle yeah and and now like you've got a lot more um, cat and mouse happening in the North Mm -hmm. Sea and the Mediterranean and uh, and the Pacific like it's it's really nice to see like surface battle groups like you know popping out for opportunistic raids and then sort of running as the heavies arrive in battle like that's nice air warfare still feels like unless you really micromanage that your pilots go up there and are like, death or glory, boys. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like, it's kind of, it's it's more than kind of frustrating. Like I, I hate everything about controlling my Air Force. I really do. I, 
I feel like, you know, in Distant Worlds, how you can yeah. choose any aspect of the game and give it up to the AI, which it then handles competently. Every time the game reminds me, by the way, you've got some aircraft you can do some shit with. I'm like, why can't the AI just... Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's so it's, boring and frustrating. Well, and, and it's so poorly explained. Like, even even like the really hardcore number cruncher people I was, I was talking about earlier, like the people that write the wiki articles... There are a lot of headings where it's like, yeah, I mean, we poked around in the code. No one's like quite sure how this works or like whether you're supposed to limit the sizes of your air wings to the size of the air base or if they lose efficiency over a certain absolute size. Like there's a debate going on on whether you should break up, like if you have an air base with a thousand planes, whether it's more efficient to break that up into 10 wings of 100 or to keep them all in a single air wing, and whether that even has an effect on anything at all. I'm already falling asleep. <laughs> it's just, it's just so poorly care. explained and so so poorly understood. I feel like it's 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 the it's an area of the game that uh, we we need more feedback on how what am I doing wrong? Am I doing anything wrong? If so, what am I doing wrong? And how can well, I do it better? I mean, like definitely, you need to be shooting down bombers somehow. You need yeah. to be doing that because, like, <laughs> like I can tell when somebody has unopposed bombers. I can sure mm -hmm. as hell tell that, but I can't figure out like why are my air forces just like melting? Even when I put it like, and then if they're not melting, I put them on intercept like daytime interception raids. That's it. Like, stop crashing so many goddamn planes, and stop like fighting everything. You don't have to fight everything. Just just stay on the ground sometimes. Well, and, and then and I'm like, well, what are you guys doing? Are you guys, are you guys still doing anything? Are you shooting anything? And I run into so many, so many situations where it's like, uh, e either that's happening where my my planes are all getting destroyed, or I'm just completely unopposed in a place where I shouldn't be. Like I'm flying over Moscow, and there are no Soviet planes of any type. Yeah, in sight so this is something. <laughs> it seems like the AI is like, okay, always keep air groups active on the frontline air provinces, air territories, and it pulls literally everything out of whatever is not the front line, which makes for really weird, like, you know, everyone, like, everyone was doing fighter sweeps somewhere just to sort of keep things, you know, keep things under mm -hmm. control. But in Hearts of Iron, it's like, well, the fight has moved on, so uh, if you just want to bomb, like, Berlin, you can go for it. Like that—that's cool. <laughs> like, just do whatever you want. Like, there's nothing here. I sort of feel like when you assign uh, a, a leader to your air force, and it's like, oh, you get a buff to like nighttime raids. I'm like, you know what? Keep your buff and just run <laughs> it for me. <laughs> I've assigned the leader. I don't have time for this bullshit. Yeah, it's it's still a still a pretty fussy system uh, for yeah. for managing as well. Um, one other thing I want to call out is um, the changes to Lend-Lease programs are really, really nice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it's it's just nice to be able to be like, look, I need I need small arms. I, I've got a I've got a lot of guys and I've got no rifles for them. I don't want to reenact the start of Enemy at the Gates. Anyone got guns? <laughs> and usually, someone's like, "Yo, I've got tons of guns," and then they send them to you. And it's like it, it's just a, it's a small thing, but it's really really nice, and it gives you the sense of like you don't have these useless idiot AI partners who never help you. 
you actually have people who are willing to be, you know, the arsenal of democracy or the arsenal of the mother country or whatever, uh, which is a very pleasant change uh, from what a lot of times in Vanilla felt like a total one-way street, where I was like, okay, I've got, I've got a lot of planes. Anyone need them? Not that I trust you with them, but you, <laughs> you can have them. Uh, okay, does anybody have, like, artillery pieces? I'm a little short on that. And it's like crickets. And I was like, yeah. oh, sorry. Like, every, like, Australia sort of, like, stares off awkwardly. Like, oh, mm. <laughs> Can't remember. I'll have to check. Maybe I have some in the garage. But let me call you back. Yeah. Well, and it, it opens up strategic possibilities for those smaller nations. Like, if you're yeah. playing as New Zealand and you, you know, you got, oh, yeah, we can build Bob Semples now. It's like, yeah, except that we're using all of our factories just to supply enough guns to arm our infantry. It's like, okay, I'll just ask Britain if we can have some of their guns and then we'll be able to use our factories to build our weirdo, you know, Kiwi tanks. And, and of course, that all has an impact yeah. on autonomy as well. So there's yeah, still, uh -huh. there's like an actual risk and reward system at play here when you're asking for help. It's very right. cool. Yeah, the one thing I would like when we're talking about feedback is when I'm giving Lend-Lease, I would love to see some way to visualize the impact that that's having. Like, if, if I could look at a screen that, like, shows the deficit of the nation that I'm, I'm giving Lend-Lease to, and then will, like, kind of tell me what impact, you know, all this support equipment I'm sending over is actually having on the conflict. Because a lot of times I feel yeah. like, all right, I'm going to send a bunch of Lend-Lease to Republican Spain, and, oh, well, they lost. I don't know. I don't know what I could have done What if they did anything with that? Like, what <laughs> yeah. happened to those tanks? Yeah. Yep. Uh, not, not that you, not, no, why would I ever send tanks to Republican Spain? Like, they're gonna, they're gonna collapse in it's like, like two wait, weeks. people are just living in them? <laughs> yeah, they're houses now. Yeah. Uh, Franco, Franco's government is, is now, uh, basically He's putting families up in Matildas. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can, I can see the effect of Lend-Lease when I'm getting it. Uh, mm -hmm. but not so much when I'm, when I'm sending it. And it does make it kind of tricky to, to be like, it's like you're running a really uh, sketchy or dubiously effective charity. Yeah, like you're sending <laughs> stuff off, and you're like, I, "Boy, this seems like it would help your help some kind of problem." I'm not sure it'll help your problem, but here you go. <laughs> have some anti-aircraft guns. They're on trucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, cool. <laughs> it's it's like that, that situation where you're sending aid to like some dictator run state and then they're just gonna seize it all and yeah keep it yeah but uh it would be nice to, to have like a screen that could show you know open open requests for lend lease from different nations and what it's gonna go to like okay this allied nation is undersupplied and they need this or oh, this allied yeah. nation wants to build this type of division but they're missing this component so if you send them this, they will build some of these, and, and that'll help them out. Because you get the feeling that, that rationally, when you're making a deal like that, when someone asks for something, they're going to tell you why, and not just be like, because. Yeah. Yeah, I want it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm the important <laughs> one here. Just do what I say. Yeah. Uh, but, like, on balance, I have to say, like, I still love Hearts of Iron. I, I oh, still yeah. I, I like it more. I still yeah. think it's great. And Fraser, I'm glad if if together for victory, 
uh, has brought us together on Hearts of Iron, then, <laughs> then I think it's an expansion uh, well worth having. And to be fair, it might be like maybe some of my confusion about some aspects of this game would go away if I wasn't always like, I'm going to play one of the big boys. Maybe, maybe, I need to, maybe I need to spend some time as New Zealand thinking about yeah, what I've done. Yeah, just come and hang out with the Kiwis and make a ridiculous tanks that no one in their right mind would use. What a what a curious what a what a curious saga that is. Well, and it's it's great too because they even go further with the alternate history and they have like if the Bob Semple program had continued, you can yeah, get the, like the, the big, big Bob. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> like so they cool. actually have these like non-historical tanks that could have been developed out of that that first one, yeah. But I just love the idea that someone looks at the Bob Sample and is like, not only do I like this, but we're going to make more of them and then make more. <laughs> no, no. I don't like it, Bob. I love it. <laughs> uh, only it could have been powered with sheep. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think a key context, too, is like, it's a fifteen dollar expansion. Like it, it kind of comes down to I the the stuff that's come out with the update is is pretty crucial as well mm -hmm. uh, that you don't have to buy the expansion for. Uh, but at the same time, like especially if you're you're wanting a, a little more to do with uh, sort of second tier powers and Commonwealth stuff, uh, I'm really enjoying my game as Britain. Uh, it's 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 really added a lot. So I think for me, it's definitely a uh, it's it's a good refresh. Uh, of Hearts of Iron 4, and overall the game is continuing to evolve into a stronger version of itself. Uh, it's it, like I, I'm, I'm still I'm half dreading, half looking forward to the day when Hearts of Iron begins to mutate, as all Paradox games begin to, mm -hmm. and it stops being recognizably the game I started playing. But for now, it's still in that refining phase. We haven't yet gotten uh, to the you know, as you put it once, uh, TJ, the professional modding stage of, of right, expansions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's when I when I compare it to a similarly priced U4 expansion, like something like Respublica, that does kind of put into perspective that, yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't a, a game shattering, you know. Yeah. Holy crap expansion. This is a. Here's some cool new stuff. Here's some cool new mechanics for a few specific countries type of expansion. And I think it succeeds pretty well at that. TJ's completely wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a game changer. Don't listen to him. It's, it's, well, here's, that, here's what it is. It's like buying a source book for like D&D &D or something. Like yes. It's going to give you some new adventures to go on. <laughs> But it doesn't really give you any new, you know, class options or change the way that the the mechanics underlying it work. All I can that feel much. it. It depends on how you play it. I mean, I think I actually I think you're completely right, TJ. But we just we look for a different thing with the game. We play it differently. Um, I don't have enough time to read thirty books worth of wiki <laughs> wiki articles. <laughs> so, um, but you know, if you just want to muck around. Uh, and do some weird experimental stuff with New Zealand, which sounds quite saucy, actually. Um, <laughs> then, then yeah, this is the, this is a great piece of DLC for you. All right, so that will do it for this week and for Hearts of Iron Four together for victory. Uh, we'll be back again soon with more strategy discussion. 
Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, for Fraser Brown and TJ Hafer, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. Cool. <laughs> I, I love right. in the original podcast that we did for Hearts of Iron, everyone's like, I fucking love this game. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. And then it's like, yeah, I quite like this expansion. I'm like, no, it's the best. <laughs> I know. The dog's bollocks. Fuck you. <laughs> Fraser, reliably the weird one. Yeah. <laughs>